You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Not only did Damon and Naomi survive the breakup of their first band, they've gone on to become one of the longest-running duos in indie rock. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cotta, the Chicago Tribune. We talk to the former Galaxy 500 members and review the much-hyped collaboration between Jay-Z and Kanye West. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions and time now for some music news. That is the Clash classic song, White Riot, from their debut album, Greg, written by Joe Strummer after race riots at the Notting Hill Carnival in 1976. What has been going on in the streets of London, spreading to the rest of the UK, is it something in common with what the Clash was singing about decades ago? Economic disparity, racial tensions overflowing onto the streets? Or is it more like the Sex Pistols, anarchy in the UK? Bunch of people taking advantage of an opportunity and saying, let's descend on this store and wreck it. I think sociologists and politicians and police officials are going to be debating what the causes of these riots were for years, period. But in the meantime, a lot of small businesses, a lot of people have been hurt. And the music industry has been hit hard. A 215,000 square foot warehouse owned by the Sony Corporation burned to the ground in London. And I'm talking about, I saw I saw pictures of this. It looked like London after the Blitz. The Sony Corporation, of course, has very deep pockets. But part of their distributor network, the Pius Group, was in that warehouse. And they represented some 160 small independent labels from around the world. And I'm talking about some of the very best. Sub Pop, The Beggars Group, Domino, Warp, XL, Soul Jazz, Matador, Thrill Jockey. What a loss to these companies. All of their stock destined for Europe is destroyed. 750,000 units The Beggars Group lost. That's Matador, XL, 4AD. $300,000 worth of product the small Chicago thrill jockey label lost. It's going to be really hard for these small independent labels to recoup those kind of losses. We're talking about a major part of their budget for the year. And let it be said, you know, those indie labels still do a huge part of their business selling CDs, selling vinyl, and in some cases selling DVDs, which also were destroyed. Yeah, right, Jim. It's going to be a huge repercussion felt by this over the next year for these small labels. Pius does carry insurance that will cover the replacement cost of the actual product, 
But it's not going to cover shipping, processing, administrative costs. When you talk about replacing, say, 100, 200 vinyl albums, you'll never make that back because shipping plants charge a lot more to press those smaller quantities. So they may never replace those 100, 200 vinyl copies lost in the fire. Plus, there's a loss of time. The Arctic Monkeys were set to release a new single. All of the physical copies of that were destroyed in this fire, and now that release date has been pushed back to a time to be determined. The indie music community, both in the U.K. and the U.S., is coming together and trying to raise money to help these labels to show their support. There's a new website called LabelLove.com, and we'll keep you abreast of those efforts. Big news at the top of the Recording Industry Association of America, the number one music industry lobbying group, a change in leadership for the first time in a decade. Carrie Sherman, the organization's president, is succeeding its chief executive, Mitch Bainwall, who is moving on to the Alliance of the Automobile Manufacturers. Bainwall put on the rose-tinted glasses in giving his farewell letter to the recording industry, basically saying, hey, we're doing great, boys. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Wonder what industry he's talking about, Jim. I mean, here we are in a free fall over the last decade. Two-thirds of the revenue has gone out of this business in the last decade under Bainwall's leadership. And yet here he is saying that we're winning the battle. We have turned the tide. He's citing some interesting numbers. 30 million people in May of 2010 were illegally file-sharing 24 million a year later, he says, a 20% reduction. Meanwhile, 120 million people are actually buying on the Internet. So he says there's now a 5 to 1 advantage over legal file sharing versus illegal. That flies in the face of every other statistic that I've ever seen on this issue. The International Phonograph Association has said for years that illegal file sharing outstrips legal 40 to 1 on an international level. I find it hard to believe that in the United States the statistics are so dramatically different. In addition, he's talking about a 4% revenue increase over the last few months in recording industry fortunes. He's not citing the fact that over the last 10 years this industry has literally bottomed out. He's putting a lot of faith in iCloud and Spotify to make the Internet a place of order rather than chaos. But meanwhile, Is this a case of too little, too late? Are iCloud and Spotify really going to save an industry that is in this much trouble? I'd put my bets on Apple doing pretty well, and I think Spotify is going to do fine on its own. But the three or four major labels that are left, I'm wondering what they're thinking about Bainwall's letter. Well, I'll tell you two things, Greg. One thing he didn't mention was the fact that this is one of the only industries in history that resorted to suing its own customers. The other thing is that he actually wrote this with a stick in the mud because he doesn't have a computer, much less any electricity, in the hut where he apparently lives. In 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Walking Backwards by our guests this week, Damon and Naomi. The husband and wife team of Damon Krakowski and Naomi Yang met as teenagers. They were students at the same Manhattan prep school, but they didn't start making music together until college. That's when Damon and Harvard classmate Dean Wareham recruited Naomi to play bass in what would become Galaxy 500, one of the most influential indie rock bands of the late 80s and early 90s. They only released three studio albums between 88 and 90, but they helped define that dreamy lo-fi sound that many would call slowcore, influenced a million bands since low, first and foremost above them. Wareham pulled the plug on Galaxy 500 in 91, but that only signaled the start of something new for Damon and Naomi. They're a long-running duo now with eight albums to their name stretching back over those 20 years. The latest was released on their own 2020-20 record label. It's called False Beats and True Hearts. Now, Damon and Naomi sat down with us recently to perform tracks from that new album, and we began by talking about their extraordinary longevity. Twenty-five years, this is a remarkable achievement for any band, but especially true of Damon and Naomi because I believe at one point, in your own words or your own thoughts, there was going to be no future for this band after Galaxy 500 broke up. It was like, that's the end of music for us as far as we're concerned. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, we, we decided to retire mm-hmm. after yeah. that, after the breakup of Galaxy 500. But we kind of do that every tour. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, That it's, was different. We really meant it. I mean, it, it was sort of from innocence to experience. We were very disillusioned uh, when the band broke up. And we just thought, well, maybe it's really time to do some other things. We put our instruments away, but it didn't last for too long because we realized that we really loved playing music. Yeah, we, well, we kept writing songs actually at home in that little period. and uh, But we weren't telling anybody because I think our confusion was not really about playing music. It was about how to make it public. Mm. You know, that, that had been all the disappointment. The playing was, had been great. So we kept writing songs at home, and then our old producer, Kramer, who produced all the Galaxy 500 records, he kept calling us, and he was saying to us, I know you're writing songs. <laughs> and we were like, well, yeah, of course, but you know, we're not going to you know, we do this again. And uh, finally he said, well, look, come down to my studio. No charges. I'll do all the studio time. This is at Noise New York. Kramer's studio in New York was... You know, bare brick walls and um, really, really open. It was a loft space. Loft space in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. Walk up. Very high ceiling. You had to carry all your stuff up. Kramer never helped. And <laughs> of course not. He had a control room, and by the time we made the third and final Galaxy 500 record, the control room wall had been condemned by the fire department. <laughs> so we came back between On Fire and This Is Our Music. He had no more control room. So he was just sitting there. It was in the just room a, some rubble and. Yeah, no, one had, no one had cleaned it up. The board in the corner. And uh, Kramer said, oh, it turns out it's so much better this way. Before we leave Galaxy 500, for people who don't know this band, usually influential, those three albums, 
Last year, Dean Wareham, your former bandmate, tours playing the songs of Galaxy 500. He's only one third of Galaxy 500 <laughs> in my book. I, I, I saw you guys back in the day many times, and it was it was always extraordinary. Oh, thank you. How did you feel about that? Oh, very strange. But you know, it was his choice. Um, well, people are actually wherever we go in the world, they're always asking us, "Well, is there going to be a Galaxy 500 reunion, or when?" And, and to me. It, I can't imagine ever doing that. Those songs were from a certain time, and I'm glad the music can still have meaning for people, but as a musician, I mean, I think it's different for people who have been playing the songs that they wrote 25 years ago for 25 years straight, and I'm sure they've changed, or, you know, Bob Dylan, they've sort of grown with the songs. Um, Mm. But those songs really, for the most part, feel like a part of a different time for me. You know, playing music, you have to really be in that experience. And so the idea now of playing those songs and even more playing them with Dean, who, you know, we've moved so far apart, it just doesn't seem like it would be a very artistically gratifying experience. Mm. Well, with so many of your peers, you know, Dinosaur and the Pixies, actually almost all of your peers, except for Husker Du and you, (laughs) the only ones not cashing in on that reunion train. I I feel like it's like saying... Okay, I want to wipe out all the artistic growth and emotional growth of the last 25 years mm, yeah. and just say like, okay, yeah, no, that actually wasn't worth anything. I only want to be back to where I was when I was 21. And that's depressing. Yeah. Mm. You know, when we've we've pulled out a favorite song uh, now and then, which is Blue Thunder, mm. um, but the only way I really makes sense now for us is to reinterpret it as we play music now. And really, I have to re- inhabit the lyric all differently. I have to, I mean, it was Dean's lyric, but I need to understand it differently to sing it even. We're here with Damon and Naomi at uh, Sound Opinions, as well as Smokey and Bob. How about a song? What are we going to hear? Sure. We thought we'd start with a song from our new album called How Do I Say Goodbye? Thank you. 
That's How Do I Say Goodbye, performed by Damon and Naomi live on Sound Opinions. We're back with the band after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, and then Greg and I will review another duo, Hip Hop Kings, Jay-Z and Kanye West. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. You've been listening to our conversation with Damon and Naomi. The husband and wife team has a new album out called False Beats and True Hearts, and it's yet another instance of their signature combination of smart, cerebral songwriting and dreamy melodies. Now that the pair has been recording together for more than two decades, it's easy to forget that their musical history could have unfolded very differently. After Galaxy 500 broke up, drummer Damon and bassist Naomi were essentially a rhythm section without a lead singer. 
and they had other interests they wanted to pursue besides making music. For example, in 1989, they founded an indie publishing company called Exact Change, which reissues classic avant-garde texts. Through this, they released eight albums, demonstrating a range of musical possibilities with only two members. I want to get back to this idea of the band and its formative years. Was it always part of the deal when you started producing records that it was going to be about this duo kind of concept? Did you ever explore, oh, you know, we'll just be a rhythm section with somebody else or, Mm, you know, a collaborative approach? How did it end up with you two driving it? It was kind of all that was left. Oh, well, yeah, and, and we did spend time as a rhythm section for someone else. Um, we worked with Wayne Rogers and Kate Bigger in the band Magic Hour. They had lost their rhythm section, and they were like, hey, you guys want to be our rhythm section? It was a very different kind of band, um, long psychedelic jams. And so we just sort of were like, yeah, that'd be really fun. But we were also doing our own um, songwriting at the same time separately. Yeah, I mean, which was kind of what we had been doing in Galaxy 500 anyway, because at home... We would play together, just the two of us, mm-hmm. but not on stage. That was a big shift for us. We were we were very comfortable as a rhythm section on stage. So, you know, there was a while we thought, well, we could be like the Sly and Robbie of, you know, indie rock. <laughs> but but no one called. You know, no. That was kind of the problem. Well, there's a recurring theme here. We have Bob Rainey, world-class saxophonist here with you today, and, and Smokey Hormel, legend on guitar. You guys play very nice with others, you know. Whether it's the Magic Hour <laughs> collaboration, the uh, the work you did with the Japanese band Ghost, yeah. that's part of the rhythm section mentality. It is true. That is a sort of view from behind the kit. You know, when we worked with Ghost, they came from a, a different background of how to record and how to work with with one another. Japanese bands tend to have a leader. Mm. You know? It's really much more hierarchical. In that recording session, there was a real sort of I don't know if it was really a cultural confusion where they would say how do you want me to play this? Mm. Or, you know, please tell Kurahara what your image is for this solo. And mm. we'd be like, no, like, he's yeah. Kurahara. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're like, our image was that Kurahara would play a solo. Yeah. That was the image. <laughs> you know, the idea of flying you over here was that you play what you want to play. Right. And so we've always chosen the player, mm. you know, not the part. song. All right. We thought we'd play a song called Turn of the Century. Mm. Two, three. Thank you. 
Turn of the Century by Damon and Naomi on Sound Opinions. 
From 98's Playback Singers, one of a couple albums you put out on Sub Pop, now the new record, Full Beats and True Hearts, is on 2020, your label. For a couple of Harvard-educated folks, <laughs> you, you are in the two least remunerative businesses in the world. <laughs> you noticed. You, you run a publishing company. Yeah, not only that, they've just gone downhill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're now extinct. Yeah. An indie label and a publishing company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not chosen for financial uh, success, I yeah. guess. So let's just say we, we never had a business plan. Yeah. Because <laughs> if we did... We, then we'd really be fools. <laughs> well, I love exact change. Thank you know, you. Uh, when I was uh, working on my, my psychedelic history, I mean, so many of those books were obscure and out of print. Mm. You guys were reissuing, you know, uh, great stuff like Artaud and mm-hmm. some of the psychedelic philosophers, some of the surrealists. Where does that come from? As you mentioned, we did go to Harvard, and then I was actually in grad school. Uh, that was while we were still playing in Galaxy 500. You know, working my way through the library and certain sections of the library where I found all these really strange books... And I would go uh, to find my own copies, and they, they weren't in print. And we had all these friends, Kramer and other people we knew who had indie labels with records, and we just thought, well, you know, why couldn't you do it with books? But we didn't ask anybody first. Is that a good idea? <laughs> no, actually, I, at the time, I remember there was an older publisher. He was probably like our age now, and he was like, oh, don't do it. <laughs> hey, yeah, actually, that's true. We met all these embittered older publishers yeah. at the mm. time. But, you know, we were young and we thought, oh, they're just embittered old people. And now it. we know just how they got where they are. <laughs> if anybody asked that question, is it a good idea, before they created anything, they would be so discouraged they would never do it. I, so. I think that's so true. Well, it depends, you know, what you're looking for. Well, you've got to provide some guidance for those people who have tried to do this before, entering into a partnership with your loved one uh, mm. on a business level, a musical level. You've got all three things going at the same time. What are a couple of keys to keeping it going for as long as you have? I think we both try really to be in the present. Our relationship, we met each other when we were kids. You know, we were mm. different people. And you can't, you can't stay frozen if we were trying to be you know, the high school sweethearts that we were. Play the music from when we were 21. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that doesn't work. I just don't believe you can, you can really live in the present that way or with another person. You know, listening to the lyrics, you guys obviously put a lot of time into that. Do you see the songs as more vehicles for those, those words? I mean, I'm curious where they figure in. Mm, and, you know, we used to write lyrics last, and that was a holdover from the days when we were in a band and we would jam and we would come up with tunes but but that's no and also before true. we were singing because yeah. I mean even though uh, I'm in mean, Galaxy 500 you know I would sing maybe one song on a record we we really weren't for the most part writing the lyrics and we weren't singing that was sort of this amazing thing to discover it sounds sort of dumb because we'd already been playing music for a long time by the time we started playing as Damon and Naomi and, and performing but all of a sudden we were like wow it's so powerful to be singing and to be communicating these words to an audience and you know <laughs> maybe other people would have figured that out to begin with no one knows this time we share all the thoughts
you know, you stand up in front of an audience and you sing a song and you feel them listening to the lyric. I'm not revealing any trade secrets here. People listen to <laughs> to songs when they listen to songs, but but it's a, it was a sort of a new feeling, a new a new almost responsibility to the music. It's like, oh my god, you know, you, you come out here, you better be singing something you mean, because mm. people are really listening. We are here in the studio with Damon and Naomi and Smokey Hormel and Bob Rainey. How about another song, guys? Sure, one more. Well, how about? Wow. Um, I'd love for you to sing. You, know, you want to sing second line? Uh, anyway, this is this song. Second Life comes from a couple records ago, but it's it's uh, still very much uh, in the present for us.
Second Life. Damon and Naomi. Damon Krakowski, Naomi Yang. Smokey Hormel tearing it up on guitar. And Bob Rainey. Thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. Oh, thanks. Thank we you. feel very lucky to be here and lucky to be here with Bob and Smokey. To watch video of Damon and Naomi in the studio or stream their entire live performance, visit soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on our airwaves, call 888-859-1800. Jim and I will be back with reviews of new albums by rappers Jay-Z and Kanye West and blues guitarist Jimmy Vaughn. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Bottles, putting supermodels in the cab. Proof. Man, I guess man, I got man, my swagger back. Man, Truth. Man, New watch alert. Hue blows. Or the big face rolly, I got two of those. Arm out the window through the city, I'm a new slow. Cut back, snap back, see my cut through the holes. Damn, easy and ho. Where the hell you been? Niggas talking real reckless. Stuck man. I adopted these niggas. Fill them in. Now I'm about to make them tuck their whole summer in. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the voice of the late Otis Redding, powering a track called Otis, brought to us by Jay-Z and Kanye West, from their much-anticipated and greatly hyped new album, Watch the Throne. You've probably already heard about this. It's one of the few hip-hop records in history that did not leak. It, of course, is a bringing together of two of the biggest names this art form ever has produced. Forbes recently released its list of the most successful hip-hop artists, Greg. Jay-Z was number one, 37 million he made last year. Kanye West was number three, 16 million he made. They were separated by Diddy in between. That's not going to be the case next year because in addition to this album, there's going to be a massive tour starting in the fall, these two crossing America together. Not the first time they've come together. Jay-Z was always a stellar talent, but it was his 2001 album, The Blueprint, that really put him over the top, and many of the best tracks were produced by a then-unknown young talent from Chicago, Kanye West. Kanye took off into the stratosphere himself with his first album in 2004. I think for a long time these two have thought they, they had some unfinished business from back then. We'll get into our reviews in a minute. Here is a track we're going to highlight. It's called Made in America by Jay-Z and Kanye West from Watch the Throne on Sound Opinions. Sweet King Martin, sweet Queen Coretta, sweet Brother 
mama, I was on the come up. She said you going to school, I give you a summer. Then she met no ID and gave me his number. Ten years later, she driving a Hummer. This hustle every day for a beat from Ye. What I do? Turn around, get them beats to J. And I'm rapping on the beats they was supposed to buy. I guess I'm getting high on my own supply. Downtown mixing fabrics, trying to find the magic. Started a little blog just to get some traffic. Old folks will tell you not to play in traffic. Uh, a million hits and the web crashes. Damn, South Park had them all laughing. Now all my niggas designing and we all swagging. Uh, ignore the critics just to say we did it. This ain't no fashion show, motherfucker. We living. Martin. That is Made in America from Watch the Throne, the new collaborative album between Jay-Z and Kanye West, a momentous amount of hype preceding this album's digital release, followed by the physical product. Jim, I can't think of two bigger superstars in pop culture at the moment. The fact that they're collaborating on an album together makes this record maybe the best record ever made, right? According Before anybody's ever heard it. You've got to assume that's going to be amazing, fantastic. It's like Paul McCartney singing with Mick Jagger. <laughs> you know, the anticipation and the hype has been so great that I don't think there's any way the two of them could have lived up to this. And I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying that Kanye West's solo records are among the very best records of the last decade. I have had two of them at the very top of my year-end top ten list. I think Jay-Z may be the best MC alive at the moment in terms of just pure flow. Bring those two together and you think, how can you miss? Well, I'll tell you how you can miss. By completely misreading the tenor of the times. Here we are in the summer of 2011. The world is literally burning. You know, there's, there's riots in London. We've got war in Afghanistan. We have got an American economy that is in the toilet. We have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of unemployed in the summer of 2011. And yet Jay-Z and Kanye West release a single called Otis, which we played at the top, which is essentially a litany of product placement opportunities. These guys are telling us how rich they are. Even that song, Made in America, kind of this wistful hymn. It is meant to evoke the, the legacy of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And Jay-Z and Kanye tell us about how hard their early life was and how incredibly rich they are now. And it's not like I expect them to be Bono or U2 or Save the World, but I do expect them to be a little bit more in touch with the streets. I mean, Chuck D called them out a few days ago saying, you know, you guys can be better than this. Otis, you know, was a poor black man who died in a jet plane. And you guys are talking about the jet planes you own, you know? I mean, it's like, it's one of those things where you seem to be missing the point here. I think this is a trash of record. I think it's one of the biggest disappointments in in hip-hop history, really. I I have to agree, Greg. It is a trash at record, and it's really sad because both of these are stellar talents that are capable of much better. They're capable of much better than the rampant sexism on this record, and they're capable of much better in terms of the intellectual content, even when they go down that path toward Bonoism, if you will, murder to excellence, which starts with Kanye being horrified that there were more gun violence deaths in Chicago last year than there were in Iraq. Jay-Z comes forward to, to posit that the solution to this is yet more materialism, telling us how he dresses in black tie and dresses in Dries, the boutique shop, and 
Paris. Mm. It's like, really? That's your solution to one of the biggest and most tragic problems in America is to spend more money or to get rich, to get to that throne and then throw your cash around? They have very little to say. There are some moving moments where Jay-Z kind of pulls a Kanye, talking about how he would like to have a family and the values he would like to instill. Kanye, on the other hand, is backing away from the very personal, very vulnerable side he's shown on his last two albums. What a letdown, a double trash it. That is I Ain't Never from Jimmy Vaughn, the new album Play More Blues Ballads and Favorites, a sequel to an album of blues and R&B covers that he put out a year ago. Jimmy Vaughn, one of the great guitar players of the last 30, 40 years, really, born in Dallas, moved to Austin, Texas, where he became a big part of that scene in the 70s with the band called the Fabulous Thunderbirds really one of the best blues and R&B bands of its time. It had some success in 1986 with a song called Tough Enough and a million-selling album of the same name. But Vaughn is perhaps even better known as the older brother of the great guitar player Stevie Ray Vaughan, a dominant voice in the 80s. Died in a tragic helicopter crash after a gig just outside Chicago in 1990. Just before he died, he went into the recording studio with Jimmy, and together they recorded an album called Family Style. Jimmy Vaughn then began a solo career in the mid-90s. He's been going strong ever since, basically playing the music he grew up with. Blues-steeped soul, R&B, and country music informed by the guitar playing of Freddie King, B.B. King, Albert King, his, his great idols. We're going to review plays more blues, ballads, and favorites in a minute, but let's play another track from it first. This one features vocalist Luann Barton, a longtime friend of Jimmy Vaughn's. It's called No Use Knocking on Sound Opinions. No use that I treat you bad Cause I'm the best man that you've ever had No more knocking, no use knocking on my door Cause it's all over now I don't want you no more Stop bugging me all the time I treated you right but you were so unkind No more knocking No use knocking on my door Cause it's all Mama, 
That was No Use Knockin' by Jimmy Vaughn on Sound Opinions from the new album. Plays more blues, ballads, and favorites. And Greg, that's sort of an uninspired title. (laughs) You know, plays more, giving you more of the same. And indeed, Jimmy is. It was about a year ago that he did the first volume of these uh, deep blues nuggets. There's no heavy lifting here. However, the guy's a wonderful guitar player. What he is not is a singer. Unfortunately, Lou Ann Barton, who is a great singer, only sings on three songs here. I would kill to have her singing a whole album and have uh, Jimmy Vaughn backing her up throughout. I've been in love with her voice since I first heard her down in Austin 20 years ago, the first time I went there for South by Southwest. And Jimmy Vaughn, you know, a killer guitar player, but there's just a little something missing on this album. It's never embarrassing. It's just only extraordinary during the three Luann Barton songs. So on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, that puts it right in the middle at a burn it. Well, one of the things I've always admired about Jimmy Vaughn, Jim, is that he has that self-effacing style. It's almost modest to a fault. Stevie Ray, his brother, was a much more showy guitar player and got all the accolades because, you know, it was kind of a new Hendrix kind of approach to the guitar. Whereas Jimmy Vaughn has always been about that terse, kind of very incisive, say-it-and-get-out kind of approach to guitar playing. And I love that about him. He, You know, he, he highlights that here as well as his deep love for this music. I mean, he's going back to cover songs associated with artists like Jive and Gene and Ann Laurie, who nobody's ever heard of, not to mention deep tracks from Ray Charles and Hank Williams Sr. So his love for, for this music really comes through. Agreed, he's not a great vocalist, but as a guitar player, as a guy who chooses his spots expertly, lets the groove ride, and plays really well with his friends, including Luann Barton, he's a fantastic band leader and guitar player. And I'm going to give this record a buy it. I think you're being a little bit kind, but what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to play some buried treasures, records underneath the mainstream radar that you cannot live without. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Damon and Naomi were recorded by Drew Bodker. Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the assistance of Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey guys, this is Eric from Parker, Colorado. been listening for a few years, and one of the bands that I learned about from you guys is the Brooklyn band Parts and Labor. They actually came out with a new album back in March. been a little surprised that I haven't heard a review of the album because I know you guys have kind of championed them in the past. They kind of maintained the noisy synth-pop sound that they've had the past few albums, but they've really upped the melodies and the hooks, and I think the, the album is, is just fantastic. Thanks, guys. Greg, this is Brian Phillips calling from McDonough, Georgia. Enjoyed your duets show quite a lot, and I would like to nominate two songs, one which is very much within your definition of a duet, and the other one which is a little bit outside. One is It's No Game by David Bowie, with the separate vocal by Michi Hirota. 
doing the translation of the vocals in Japanese. Now, I didn't know that until years later, but there's such a fascinating air to the song, it doesn't really make a difference if you know what's being said in Japanese. on both her individual voices and her harmonizing. Yeah, my name is Ben Cohen from Philadelphia. Just listened to the duet show, which was great, and I was put in mind of a unique hip-hop duet, the song Latirix. It's got two great rappers, Latif and Lyrics Born, doing something that I think is kind of unique, where they're rapping different verses at the same time. Their voices kind of go over and under each other, and it forms a really unique kind of hip-hop duet. Just wanted to put that out there. Thanks for a great show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.